My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Well, welcome as we go through another Uh, part of the Word of God. I'm so glad that you're joining me. And if it's your first time, welcome. I'm glad to have you. We're just going through the Bible verse by verse and uh, rightly dividing the Word of Truth to the best of our ability. And I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to study the Word of God for yourself, to pray about it and to allow it to be divided to you. I'm just doing my job uh, as a pastor to try to help people understand what does the Bible mean. Very similar to what Nehemiah did when he went back to Jerusalem and he read the Bible and the people said, hey, don't just read the Bible, teach us what it means. And so that's part of my job as a teacher and as a pastor. And so we are continuing our journey through the book of Matthew and we are looking at Matthew chapter 9 and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 14 today and through to verse 26 And so I'm looking forward to going through that with you. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe to my YouTube channel, please go ahead and do that. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, podcasts, if you're listening, share these with as many people as you possibly can. And let's get the Word of God out there uh, to as many people as possible. So continuing our our journey here through the book of Matthew, chapter 9, and Jesus gets to verse 14, and he says this, Then the disciples of John came to him. So this is Matthew writing, and he says, the disciples of John. Now, he's talking about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist's disciples come to see Jesus. They came to him and saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast so often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, a little bit of judgment here. Um, The ministry of John the Baptist was very strict. So now that the people who followed him, had, you know, if you were, if you were a disciple of John the Baptist, you were disciplined because John the Baptist was. Uh, he was disciplined in his character. Uh, he was characterized by a, uh, I guess you could say an air of humble repentance. Matthew talks about that in chapter three, verses one to four. And John the Baptist's disciples actually imitated this. They showed their own proper humility. It wasn't fake in the light of their own sin and the people that they served. And they said, why do the Pharisees fast often? Well, it was true. The Pharisees did fast often, uh, often twice a week, according to Luke chapter 18, verse 12. But they actually didn't do it out of a spirit of humble repentance. They did it because they were trying to impress people with how spiritual they were. And Matthew's already dealt with that in chapter 6. But Jesus' disciples apparently didn't fast as much. So the disciples of Jesus didn't fast as much as the Pharisees or as much as John the Baptist and his disciples. So Jesus gets asked this question and now he's about to explain his answer. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come where the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are then preserved. 
It wasn't right for Jesus' disciples to imitate the Pharisees in their hypocritical shows of spirituality by fasting. Nor was it right for them to imitate the disciples of John the Baptist in their ministry of humble preparation because the disciples of Jesus lived in the experience that John was actually trying to prepare people for. And Jesus said, but the days will come. There's going to come a day when fasting would be appropriate for Jesus' followers. But at the very present time, in this short window in history, when Jesus was among them, it wasn't for now. John Trapp uh, drew three points from this. He said, number one, that fasting is not abolished with the ceremonial law, but still to be used as a duty of the gospel. Number two, that times of heaviness are times of humiliation. And number three, that our idyllic times here are but as marriage feasts. For continuance, they last not long, is what he said. Now, Jesus said the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Jesus is saying, listen, they're going to take me away. I'm going to be taken from you. uh, And I'm threatening their system right now. It was actually the very first glimpse that Jesus gave to his disciples of his coming rejection. Then he goes on and he says, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or the wineskins break. Now, with this illustration of wineskins, Jesus is explaining, I haven't come to repair the old institutions or the systems of Judaism, but to institute a whole new covenant altogether. And the new covenant doesn't just improve on the old, it replaces it and goes beyond it. It increases. He said, but they put new wine into new wineskins and then both are preserved. Jesus' reference to wineskins was his announcement that the present institutions, the religious leaders of Judaism, could not and would not be able to contain his new wine. He was going to form a new institution and that new institution uh, was going to have to be the church. And the only reason the church was going to be have to be instituted because Jesus was going to be rejected. And that would bring the Jews and the Gentiles together into a completely new body, which is what Ephesians chapter 2 is all about. David Guzik says this, Jesus reminds us that what is old and stagnant often cannot be renewed or reformed. God will often look for new vessels to contain his new work until those vessels eventually make themselves unusable. This reminds us that the religious establishment of any age is not necessarily pleasing to Jesus. Sometimes it is in direct opposition to or at least resisting God's work. Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old. And that's what salvation is all about. Jesus was bringing something new. Jesus was not destroying the law. He wasn't uh, doing away with it. He fulfilled it. And because he fulfilled it, he was able to introduce a new covenant. Okay, so then we move on to verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. This is somebody important. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her so she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Uh, He was still speaking when this ruler came, while he spoke these things. So Jesus is is answering the disciples of John the Baptist. This ruler walks in and says, well, hey, my daughter's dead. Need you to come and lay hands on her. 
Now, Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8 actually give a fuller account of this particular miracle. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, the synoptic gospels, okay? They give a synopsis of the very similar events, three different perspectives of very similar events. Gospel of John, uh, almost a v- totally different gospel uh, as far as uh, div- deals with different topics that aren't in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the Gospel of John deals with the divinity, a lot more to do with the divinity of Jesus. Uh, so Mark and Luke give a more fuller account, or uh, sorry, I should say a more full account as opposed to a more fuller, which would be incorrect. And uh, Matthew's account is enough to show here, though, that Jesus had compassion for this ruler and we see the very simple power of God responding to the faith of those who seek him. Now, I think that it, what's something really interesting here is the very first thing that this man does is he worshipped Jesus. Jesus received the worship, uh, which actually would have been blasphemous to receive worship if Jesus himself wasn't God. But he didn't say, don't worship me, I'm not God. He he, he received it. Um, now, there are actually other instances in the New Testament where somebody was worshipped and it was and they were told to stop in Acts chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 22. Uh, any worship of a human is to be immediately rejected. And this man says, my daughter has died. So this, this ruler did the right thing, but, but this, this ruler did not have the same level of faith as the centurion because the centurion said, you don't even need to come and see. You don't even need to come and see. You can just say the word and he's going to be healed. The ruler said, no, I need you to come and see her. She's dead. I need you to at least lay hands on her. I need you to physically touch her. Uh, the ruler thought that it was essential that Jesus actually personally go and touch the little girl. Um, the centurion realized that that wasn't necessary. Okay, verse 20. And suddenly a woman. So Jesus rose. So verse 19, Jesus is now on his way to heal uh, this the, the ruler's daughter. While he's now on his way to heal that person, suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer. So he said, cheer up again. First thing he said, cheer up. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Uh, so amazing when you think again about this being expanded on in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. Um this woman had an embarrassing condition. It would not have been easy for her to even go into public because she was ceremonially uh, unclean. She would have been condemned for touching Jesus. She would have been condemned for actually being in the crowd. And that's why she wanted to do it secretly. Uh, she didn't want to openly ask Jesus. She thought, in her mind, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Now, hem of his garment. What was he wearing? Have you ever wondered, well, what does that mean? What, what kind of garments was Jesus wearing? I have. So I did some research on it. William Barclay. These fringes that Jesus was wearing were four tassels of hyacinth blue worn by a Jew on the corners of his outer garment. It was meant to identify a Jew as a Jew and as a member of the chosen people no matter where he was. 
and it was meant to remind a Jew every time he put on and took off his clothes that he belonged to God. Jesus was just like other people of the time. He dressed the same way other people dressed. He, he didn't feel any need to distinguish himself differently by how he dressed. A.B. Bruce, in, in dress, Jesus was not non-conformist. Jesus conformed to what he should wear as a Jew. Now, Spurgeon said this about the, the lady who touched the hem of his garment, the lady with the hem with the issue of blood. She was ignorant enough to think that healing went from him unconsciously. So if, if I just touch him, he won't even know. Yet her faith lived despite her ignorance and triumphed despite her bashfulness. And she was made well. Her faith, though imperfect, was enough to receive what Jesus wanted to give her. And then her 12-year disease was immediately cured. And then Jesus turns around, he sees her, and, and the, the, basically this woman had hoped to receive something from Jesus without drawing any attention to herself uh, or the embarrassing problem that she had. But Jesus actually insisted on making a public notice of her, and he did it for very good reasons. Uh, Guzik summarizes these. He did it so that she would know that she was healed, having heard an official declaration of it from Jesus. She wasn't hoping she'd been healed. Jesus said it. He did it so others would know that she was healed because her ailment was private in nature. He did it so that she would know why she was healed, that it was by her faith and not because of a superstitious touch in and of itself. He did it so that she would not think that she had stolen a blessing from Jesus and so she would never feel that she needed to hide from him. He did it so that the ruler of the synagogue would see the power of Jesus at work and therefore have more faith for himself, for his ill daughter, who he was on his way to actually go and heal. And he did it so that he could bless her, this woman, in a special way, giving her an honoured title that we never see Jesus give to any other daughter. He called her daughter. Didn't say it to anybody else. How amazing that Jesus said that to her. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 23. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players... Uh, which is interesting, I'll talk about that, and the noisy crowd wailing. And he said to them, make room, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in, he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. I actually think this is amazing. And the report of this went out into all that land. They ridiculed him. Of course they did. Because he's like, she's just sleeping. And they're like, oh, see, he doesn't even know a dead person. Now, why were there flute players and a noisy crowd? I've always wondered that. Again, uh, there's, there's some really good answers. They were, they were most likely paid mourners, which was very much the custom of the day. Even poor people would get a gathering of money together to be able to pay for a very ostentatious display of mourning. Uh, it had nothing to do with sincere sorrow whatsoever. Uh, which, and you know that they weren't sincere because they went from this loud wailing to immediately ridiculing Jesus instantly. So they weren't sincere in the first place. RT France, professional mourners were hired even by the poorest families. In the Mishnah Ketubot 4 verse 4, it specifies that you should not have less than two flutes and one wailing woman at a funeral. Uh, A.B. Bruce, mourning, like everything else, had been reduced to a system. 
Jesus put the crowd outside, takes her by the hand, and the girl arises. He he endures the scorn. He raises the girl to life. He was not going to let the criticism or the mocking or the ridiculing of the crowd keep him from doing his father's will. Now, it's interesting because Jesus did not heal every dead child that he encountered. But Jesus did so here in a simple act of mercy and compassion for a grieving father who had faith that Jesus could heal his daughter. And in addition, you know, Jesus hated death because God never designed death to be part of the human experience. And Jesus would have hated death. He would have hated what it did to people and he would have enjoyed the opportunity to defeat death with a small defeat in the moment. Before he was about to defeat it in totality on the cross, evidenced by the empty tomb, which was Jesus' ultimate sign of his defeat of death, is that when he was put in the tomb dead, he was no longer in there. The tomb could not hold him because he was alive. Now, a couple of observations that I have. Firstly, it was wonderful that the lady with the issue of blood was healed, but she later died at some stage in her life. It's also great that he healed the little girl and brought her back to life, but she also died at some stage later on in her life. We are all going to die unless Jesus comes back. And so that's why healing on this, in our time on this planet is only ever temporal. It doesn't last forever because the only healing that lasts forever is the healing in our hearts when we're cleansed from sin and the healing of our resurrected bodies when we spend eternity with God. Secondly, uh, the woman with the issue of blood did not have a perfect faith. She actually had a misguided faith about what she thought it Jesus could and couldn't do and how it would all work. God's not interested in our faith being perfect. He's interested in our faith being pure. And this woman had a pure faith. The centurion had a pure faith. The ruler who asked to come and heal his daughter had a pure faith. It wasn't perfect. The centurion was the one that Jesus said, of all the people, he probably had the most perfect faith. He was the one that got it the most. But every one of us have different levels of whether we understand what our faith should look like or not. But God is interested in the purity of our faith in us understanding who God really is. And that's what I encourage you to grow in, to grow in your faith, the purity of your faith. And I think as you grow in the purity of your faith, I think the level of your faith automatically increases where you get to the point like the centurion, you're like, you don't need to come and see him. You can just say the word. I'm a man under authority too. I get it. You just say the word. Boom, it's done. And I think that's the level of faith that God hopes that we all uh, can aspire to. So there you go. Heavenly Father, thank you for a great day in your word. I pray, Lord, for everybody watching this, I pray that you would just allow them to see right now that God, that no matter whether their faith is perfect or not, that you see the purity of their hearts and their desires to want to serve you and believe that you can do what your word says you can do. And they're the promises that we stand on in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.